0: gamers. This is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire and I have a very special guest on the pod this week. I have Lottie Hazel. She is an independent publishing consultant like in the book industry. She's a literary scholar and most recently she is a game designer. How are you doing Lottie? I'm well thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah it's an absolute delight to have you on. Uh, As you know I'm both a board game and book fanatic so it's, it's fantastic to have you here. So you work currently in publishing and in book marketing Uh, yeah can you tell us a bit about that and how you got there sure yeah so um, at the moment in my uh
1: publishing role my book publishing role um I am a independent consultant to the trade publishing industry in the UK and that basically means uh non-academic books so books that you'd find um in the UK in Waterstones Barnes and Nobles if you're in the US um and I got to This point in my career, but I previously working um, with Penguin Random House Books, so I think uh, um, your listeners, if they're book fans, will probably be familiar with. um, I'm working in various marketing departments there uh, before going freelance and independent. And I took the leap to go freelance when I started researching my PhD, which I began in. 2019 the years now mean nothing to me because 2020 <laughs> was such a blur but um
0: yeah and so what made you decide to pursue a phd while also already employed in the publishing industry
1: i before i started working with penguin i completed a master's in creative writing which i adored and at that point was talking about doing a phd and staying on um but it was more an interest in doing research rather than having the topic of what I wanted to do. And equally, I wanted to work in the world of selling stories and marketing is a great position to be in to do that. And you work with all sorts of different types of books, types of audiences um, really work out why people want to read things and how you can present books. So they flag themselves to a reader as this is something that you might like, which, um, I loved Um, and then so I had a few years working in-house in publishing and the idea for my PhD was growing Um, so it looks at subversion in contemporary uh, literary fiction uh, mostly written by women and the catalyst for my research proposal was the Me Too movement in 2017 so I was interested in how Me Too became a marketing buzzword, which is depressing, but is kind of the beast of the uh, nature of the beast um, in terms of the industry. And I grew my thesis proposal to uh, look at how uh, social movements like me Too, the, the method that I've developed could also be applied to something like Black Lives Matter, or um, even the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of how it's covered in the media and in publishing. Um, and so I developed a uh, the thesis proposal to look at how uh, Me Too was having an impact on publishing and if that was an impact on marketing or an impact on storytelling and the books that were actually being published. Um, and so from there, I went freelance and started my uh, thesis uh, research. And yeah, that was two years ago now.
0: That is amazing. And I also think it's really interesting. So you work on subversion in literature, uh, specifically with respect to food. Yeah. And I'm trying to even think of, okay, food and literature. I feel like it's one of those things that people kind of see as a set piece, but maybe don't think too much about. Yeah. I, uh, what kind of surprising discoveries have you made by paying more attention to food descriptions and what you read? Mm. I think it's an interesting
1: one because I think when I say food in literature initially, I think a lot of people understandably think about maybe food writing, specifically food writing and travel writing. And I'm interested in the small quiet moments of human behavior where food is instrumental in illustrating something that the author wants us to know about a character's mental um, state or um, a relationship that they might have. So in the books that I'm looking at, all of them are published uh, from 2019 onwards. So written supposedly, or they have the chance to be written in the wake of um, the Me Too movement. And I wouldn't say it's surprising, because I think you can see a trend. And it's important to say that trends, when I talk about them, I don't think of them in a linear fashion. Because if you think about something like Margaret Atwood's The Edible Woman, which I think was written in the 60s, like that's having progress is not, you know, it, it doesn't always take a chronological form. Um, but some of the surprising stuff that I came across is how food can be used to um, not only signify traumas, but process them and be used as a tool to regain control. Um, and that was an interesting recurring theme in the books that I was looking at. Um, food wasn't always central. But when it was used, it had an element of um, bodily autonomy or desire or reclaiming space. And I think that's one of the themes that has reoccurred is that desire to reclaim things that aren't necessarily attributed to women um, socially or historically so you know, eating a lot, eating in public, eating with abandon, um, an interest in food. There's a really great line in one of the books that I'm looking at, um, which is Supper Club by uh Lara Williams, and the line something like, um that she knew that her interest in food couldn't be publicly visible, talking about body image at that point. Um and the thing that's intrigues me is the reclaiming of those. Um, those spaces and using them for subverting social kind of um, expectations or for making new spaces I think I've just wandered
0: off into a, a tangent there so do you feel <laughs> nothing with that no no that's awesome honestly I could we could probably just do an entire podcast about that uh, yeah come on, <laughs> channel later but uh, you also you're just a relentlessly creative person clearly because in addition to all of the the work that you're doing with books, you've also become a board game designer. So, what what spurred that? Have you just been a hobby gamer for a long time? Is it a recent discovery? And what made you want to design?
1: Yeah. So, um, what maybe watch design might be the easiest way into that question because it kind of links up with my other interests. And so, I've been a hobby gamer for like maybe eight or nine years now. So. Um, my husband and I have always enjoyed playing games together. But more recently, I've become interested in the accessibility of games and what my favourite games are um, and the games that I enjoy playing or games that I can persuade my family and friends who wouldn't describe themselves as hobby gamers to play with me and that they'd enjoy to play. And so my interest in getting into design was to make games that I think lots of people would be interested in playing. And so the first game that I've designed for our indie publisher, Birdwood Games, is a game called Dog Park. And it's about collecting and walking dogs, which I'm obsessed with. I have a spring Spaniel called Rupert, who's my muse, apparently. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I designed Dog Park to be a game that would be easy to play, beautiful to look at, and is something that you could approach as someone who doesn't describe themselves as a gamer. Um, the reason that this links to my work in marketing is I was always interested in reaching out to people that maybe don't describe themselves as readers or don't walk into a bookshop or how to reach those people when that might not be the easiest, um, you know, if it's not via a bookshop or if they're not on an email list that's owned by a publisher, how do you find people to give them books that they want to play? Um, And that's Part of the reason why um, we created the publisher and why we're publishing Dog Park is to reach people who I think will love ball games. Ball games are amazing, um, and they deliver such joyful experiences. And I'd like to share those with more
0: people. So you are someone who is highly conscious of narrative and of storytelling in the most traditional way for us right now, right? Which is books. I guess maybe the most most traditional way would be oral storytelling. But we're yeah. in a, we're in a we're in a text <laughs> culture. <laughs> So what connections are you finding between the story work that you do, both as a scholar and a marketer and the story you're creating through your game?
1: I think the commonalities that I find mostly come in the community in the shared experience, even though with reading often that's an individual experience, much of the aftermath is shared with you, talk about it with friends or whether you make a booktube video about it and encourage discussion. And the same, I think, is true in gaming, but in a more immediate way. Often, unless you're playing solo games, you have a community experience with storytelling and you get to evolve a narrative together whilst you're playing a game. And I love the potential of that. Um, And I think, on a related note, there is a really interesting... um, consideration for storytellers to think about the multiple formats in which they can tell stories like the age that we're living in now with you know um easily accessible podcasts or more easily accessible um audio with great quality television with film um all sorts of different emerging digital formats board games are another way to tell stories firstly in the game designer to set the story up for you but to create a opportunity to play and to develop that scenario yourself as as the player.
0: Yeah, it's actually interesting that you should say that because I think one thing I always wonder about with board games, right, is how do you find the right balance between narrative and creating a compelling one and then also allowing agency for the players because you know, when I pick up a novel, I mean, there's interaction in the sense that I'm thinking about what I'm reading but the person who wrote is the one who's driving and I'm responding to what they did. And then, you know, gaming is obviously a little less controlled. So, you know, has that given you kind of cross insights across your industries Mm -hmm. Uh, and how does it, you know, how does it change your approach to, you know, both the things you're writing, because I know that you're writing for your dissertation and what you're designing.
1: That's a really interesting question. When you were talking about, um, the differences between novels and board games in terms of how um, static a novel is um, and how fluid a board game can be in terms of making decisions and storytelling as the user. Um, I thought of um, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. I don't know if you've read that, but you might enjoy it. Um, It's a memoir that uh, jumps around as you read. So she gives you different instructions of where to go. And it's kind of like a choose your own adventure in in the style that she's written it's um not a choose your own adventure book but it's a really creative and playful way of telling a story um which is unusual in the novel um in in terms of novels and in terms of games i think that's really interesting that's a a plus i think in game industry that you can set up as much of the story as you want to and then direct the players to go on from there like personally i like quite a um A light touch on the storytelling so there's plenty of room for players to make their own stories and to really revel in the world that you've created but i know that there are other gamers who really enjoy um directed role-playing games and um or story-directed games which um i think have you know they're equally exciting but I think the industries are interested in terms of what a novel is capable of and what a game is capable of in terms of inviting the player to
0: also make the story with the designer. Do you also see parallels between the two industries now that you are you know, both working in the book industry and working actively in the game industry?
1: I def- There's definitely parallels. I think as a marketer there, there are parallels because it's a similar type of you're marketing a physical product and um, there are similarities there from my experience so far of working in the game industry it seems to be a um, less mature in terms of the age of the industry version of the book publishing industry and the things I notice there are smaller publishers which in a way is brilliant because the barrier to entry is so much lower Um, indie publishers can launch with a fairly small amount of um capital and and make games with crowdfunding support and that's a totally acceptable way and an exciting way to make a game whereas in book publishing not so not so much like that's obviously possible but there are established routes to communities and markets um i think that there's also like i was reading yes a couple of days ago about a conversation where um a conversation about how board games should be previewed and reviewed and in the book industry you send a preview copy out if it gets reviewed then great if it doesn't that's um that's just what happens but the board game industry seems to be working a few of those things out as and establishing industry norms and i think it's an exciting time to be working in board games because it's growing at a rate but there's also a lot to learn i think for the industry as it goes along
0: yeah i definitely experience that as a reviewer because there's always conversations about you know oh at what point are you biased and you know there's some people who consider a review copy to be compensation whereas in book world hardly um that's just you just you don't expect a good review from the new york times because you sent them your book but of course that's also because there are media outlets to work for whereas in board games we're all doing it on our own as a booktube though also is there
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting one in terms of media because of the influence booktubers um, and um, people on social media have versus traditional printed media. Um, And I think it's something that all industries are learning at the moment. So recently, um, as I'm sure lots of people who work in reviewing will know that you have to mark a product with, you know, ad or gifted or, you know, PR sample, whatever it is. And that's that's a, a learning curve for the book industry as well because if you're working with someone who is running their own channel that still has to be navigated and it's just, yeah, it's, I think that's part of the age that we're living in as well. That's just something to navigate. Yes.
0: Yeah, so that cross current is actually, yeah, that is sort of an interesting thing, isn't it? Like the book industry is also changing in terms of how review ethics have to be talked about after years of a kind yeah. of standard practice. Absolutely. Yeah. So as a marketer, you know, you talk about bringing people in both as readers and as gamers. Um, Are the strategies for that similar or, you know, do you have to take a different approach depending on, you know, book or game?
1: I think there has to be a slightly different approach just based on what the product is. So for a game to allow people to preview parts of that game, they need a certain level of accessibility. They need to have requirements like a computer or um, the ability to buy the game, which is more expensive than a novel um, normally. Um, with a book, it's slightly easier because you can do things like extracts and um, digital versions of the book where it's like 99p, so a lot more um, affordable in terms of price point. So there are those considerations, I think, to, to look at. But I think when it comes to games, I think the audience... Uh, potential is vaster because there are people that have games can be made of any um, type of interest and reaching those groups I think is an exciting thing whereas if you made if I wrote a book about dogs people that's going to reach a very specific type of person maybe not all you know several dog lovers but games about dogs where there's more um, potential within the contents of the product I think Um, that offers a slightly different opportunity for marketing.
0: So your academic work is also about uh, women and subversion and kind of recognizing, you know, women's issues. How does that also play over into your game life? Or does it? Like, did you pick the theme that you picked? Um, I mean, partially out of personal interest, right? But are you trying to make sure that what you create is appealing to women? Is that part of your marketing as well? Um, and how do you how do you play that? Yeah.
1: In terms of Dog Park, I've designed a game that I want to buy. And as a woman, that I suppose answers some of that question. Um, I think it's incredibly important to think about, as, and this is more as a publisher, is this game saying... I want to be played by every person who wants to play it? Or am I saying in my rule book, am I using the pronouns he? Have I only included meeples that look like men? That is incredibly important to me as a publisher. Um, And I think there's a lot more scope for making games that look like they are inviting the broadest possible audience possible.
0: So I actually do want to talk more about this because I feel like this is also an area where, you know, the book industry has had a lot of conversations that are still ongoing for good reason about things like diversity, inclusion, uh, recognizing own voices, literature. Mm. Um, But I feel like the board game industry, we're still kind of having fights about how to appeal to a broad audience. And, you know, there's a large component of people who will say, you know, well, if the game is fun, people will play it. There's no need to worry. I just play what looks good. Um, from a marketing perspective, you know, is that actually true? Or do people really need to see themselves in games in order to feel invited?
1: I think that um, if... I think the current output of the games industry is designed by people who play games. And the majority of those are men and the majority of those... A white. And so, and that's not a criticism. That's just how that is. And you design, I think you gravitate towards the stories, you know, like owned voices are not only important for not appropriating other people's stories, but in terms of they're the often the easiest thing to design, you design what you love, you design what, you know, I think from a marketing perspective, you just, you're going back to the same pool of people. If you're designing the same type of game, um, And that pool I'm sure is huge and lucrative and lots of publishers will benefit off that. But there are other people to make games for and other people to include. And there is a business angle to that, but there's also a humanitarian and a social angle that everyone who wants to play a game should feel like they're not being excluded. And that comes down to the terminology that we use as um, gamers and designers as well, like, should we be saying things like dudes on a map, for example? You know, not really, because it's not... um, That immediately puts up a linguistic barrier that's saying, if you want to play this, you need to feel comfortable stepping into the shoes of a man. And I just don't think we have to make those constraints. Like, if you want to play those games, great, good for you. There are some brilliant games that are, are made in that style, but I think there's scope for... More more. Well, there is scope for more. And that's exciting.
0: Yeah, it is. And I also think about this as a reader. I don't know about you, but did you read a lot of books that were by women in school that were presented to you as classics? Because I sort of feel like I grew up just assuming that I would just be expected to take on sort of the perspective of men. And I never saw it as problematic. I just saw it as something that I did. But now I actually read a lot of literature by women and wonder why that was not presented to me earlier. Is that something that you think may be changing, at least in terms of the book industry? And does that cross over to games as well?
1: I can't speak in terms of syllabus for what children are reading currently. I know that I didn't read a lot of female authors um, when I was studying at school i did more at university but still not that many and still not particularly diversely so if it's if the diversity can't end it just being white female authors and that be taken as the win um i think that the book industry is getting better at publishing more diversely but i still think there's an issue with um pigeonholing so I think there are lots of publishing houses and imprints that will have say, well, we've got this black memoir for this autumn. We don't need another, you know, person of colour, a memoir from a person of colour because that somehow ticked that off the list. And that is just unacceptable because we don't look at white stories in that way. And um I think with board games, the... I think it's slightly different in terms of the marketing because you when you buy a book quite a lot of it is about the author and the acquisition phase of that book as well as also about the author um that doesn't seem to be so much the case in the board game industry at the moment but I think that's because as we were talking about earlier the barrier to entry is still quite low for indie publishers for designers but it's goes without saying that the diversity within that pool is still you know fairly undiverse but i hope to see that changing and i see a lot of really positive conversations about more conscious commissioning and designing and i think that will continue to change sorry just no, want to say
0: about that A welcome guest oh <laughs> Yeah, I guess the question of women specifically is on my mind just because – oh, who wrote that article? There's an article out recently about how um, women will consume pretty evenly books that are written by women, books that are written by men. But men are statistically less likely to pick up books by female authors. And I would absolutely project beyond that that if you continued the study, we would see the same problems – regarding you know white people reading stories by people of color Mm -hmm. maybe straight people reading queer literature i think that maybe marginalized people are expected to um accept just whatever stories on offer whereas people who do not feel marginalized see themselves everywhere and just stick with it yeah um I mean, do you, as as a female designer entering the game space, like is that something that you think is happening in games as well? Do people not pay attention to game designers the same way? I always wonder. It hasn't been my personal experience so far that I've had,
1: without Dog Park um, reaching Kickstarter yet, but it hasn't been my experience that there's been like, (gasps) you're a woman. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think that looking for... um, peers the, it's, hard, it's hard to find lots of female designers who are um, yeah that, it's hard to find those and if, I think it'll be interesting as I go on I'm really hopeful so far the, um, the community that are curating the people that seem to be interested in Dog Park are interested in it I don't think they're particularly interested in me but they're interested in the game which is great um, and that is that's what I'm interested in, I'm interested in making good games for people. And in addition to that, being visible for other people working in the industry to say that there's, you know, there's another person in here. Who's not a white guy.
0: (laughs) So from a marketing perspective, you know, the book industry is having its own issues, but seems more evolved. The game industry is young and evolving uh, how, other than changing language, can you be more inviting to a broader audience?
1: I think um, the content of games is like an incredibly obvious place to start. Um, don't appropriate stories that aren't yours and be insensitive. Don't um, promote narratives that Promote slavery or um, colonization of other um, groups. Um, sorry, I'll, that sounds a bit like manifesto y. Um, <laughs> but I think part of that is starting with the designers and publishers and being aware of the cultural conversation and also the consumer desire. I think the wider consumer desire at the moment is um, to respect those things and to respect. Um, other people and be welcoming I don't think it's a um, an insular um, kind of desire at the moment um, and then I think also as a publisher as well thinking about things like where are the games placed like how normal is it for someone who doesn't buy board games to back something on Kickstarter? Is that some? Is that a journey that they'd ever make? That they'd want to make? How familiar is that? Um, like trying to get the price point to be um as accessible as possible. If that's not possible, trying to make versions of the game, whether that's print and play or online versions, that are available for people to access without thinking, I have to shell out whatever it is, forty pounds, sixty dollars, to um be part of the experience. Because that's another thing that. Publishers will have to think about in terms of also um, other types of diversity and inclusion in terms of how many people can be included in terms of a monetary standpoint.
0: Those are all really good considerations. Actually, I think, especially in comparison with books, like I know about how much a book is supposed to cost. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a roughly standard price range for hardbacks, there is a roughly standard price range for ebooks. I'm actually not seeing a very standard price point set in board games anymore. Uh, is that something that you have struggled with? And like, what does your research as somebody who's about to price their own game tell you right now?
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's because the content of board games is wildly variable to a um, to a book. So, in book publishing, you kind of got paperback, hardback, and then larger formats. Um, with board games, you could have a card game. You would have a vast minis bonanza um, <laughs> and pricing for us has been a really interesting um, journey a lot of that's looking about uh, looking at competitors looking at um what uh, people seem to be benchmarking their own games at and then also working with manufacturers and finding out how much materials cost and then working out okay how much do we need to run a business how much Do we need to, you know, make another game after this? And so that's been a really fascinating um, journey. And yeah, eye-opening in terms of designing and publishing something, other choices that I might have made differently um, if I were to do Dog Park again, having known about other (laughs)
0: factors going in. (laughs) So I also want to circle back to something really interesting that you said. And I think, again, like this is a conversation that, is absolutely still happening in the book community, for example, around books like American dirt. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think in board games, it still feels like a really fresh discussion, uh, which is, you know, you mentioned not taking stories that aren't yours. And I feel like there's a lot of argument about, oh, how do you determine that? You know, what Mm -hmm. about a historical topic? Um, You know, how do you, I mean, obviously Dog Park, that's very much your story. I mean, we saw the evidence in the background of this video. It was so cute. <laughs> but when you think about storytelling and mm-hmm. games or and novels or short stories or flash fiction, how what considerations go into deciding whether you are qualified yeah. to tell a story?
1: It's a fascinating question. and something I think about a lot um, in writing and the right to write um what um, topics are appropriate to write about. And when I approach that, or I approach game design, my thought is, is there a better person to tell the story than me? And if the answer is yes, and the reason they're a better person is because they'll have lived experience of that. Um, and that lived experience relates specifically to being a marginalised group, then I think it's, this is how I feel. I know there'll be people who disagree with me. And it's an interesting discussion. But how I feel is then that there's another story for me to tell. I have plenty of options. You know, if I'm good at my job, then I should be able to come up with ideas that I am confident that I own and I'm not exploiting. And I just think that is an important consideration when thinking about making things to give to other people.
0: What about the scope for games to confront really difficult issues? And, I mean, unless Dog Park takes a really dark turn, I don't think that's what's happening <laughs> with the current game, right? But, you know, I'm also somebody who, you know, spends a lot of time looking at historical games and thinking about how games can express sort of more difficult cultural problems, problems of war, problems of conflict. And, you know, how do you think that, I mean, those topics can be best handled in game form? I mean, I feel like literature can really push a lot of boundaries and do a lot of things. Um, in games, especially because of the participatory nature of it, You know, do you feel differently about the scope of narrative in games when difficult topics are, are on the table?
1: That's a really interesting question. I think that you're totally right about how much it changes when there is a participant, rather than just a passive reader. Um, I think games definitely have the ability to explore difficult topics, historical and otherwise. I think there is a question of what the appetite for that is. I think that's a really interesting question of how many people would like to buy educational kind of self improving games that I, I think that's fascinating. I would love to so much to do research on that um but I think it's definitely possible to tackle those. Subjects with the appropriate team. I think it's about building a team and being conscious from the outset that this is something that we know that we want to address and to address this responsibly, how do we do that? And I think that's possible to build the team around that kind of question.
0: Do you think that your work on games is eventually going to make it over into your academic work as well as your creative work? I'm really interested about um, researching and teaching
1: because my academic work has a component of teaching different types of storytelling and storytelling across formats um and a large part of my thesis at the moment is looking at um how books are presented and I'm also interested in how games are presented and how they're marketed to people so I can definitely see there being crossover the um my disposition for design and storytelling in terms of novel writing is quite different, as you said, like subversive femininity and dogs. Um, they're <laughs> not, the, you know, super close together. Um, but I am interested then in, in how you know, the different um, types of storyteller one person holds what's possible in terms of output. So this isn't really answering your question. But yes, I'm interested in how they in how they go together.
0: All right, so let's push it then. Okay, so you're talking about presentation of books towards people. What are some insights that you've gained and that you teach on that particular topic for those of us who've never thought about it before?
1: Yeah, so part of the insight from research is um, recurring language in terms of um, how books are presented or how they're reviewed in traditional press. And um, the buzzwords that seem to reoccur what is it about a um i've got a a blurb right in front of me here and this one has a load of them in um yeah what is it about musical prose and uh, and dazzling um failures power revenge, renewal like these words are there are certain buzzwords that seem to um come up in different kind of eras of storytelling and that's a marketing decision that's flag that's flagging to say if you liked Sapper club like i was talking about earlier you're also gonna like whatever it is what have i got on myself insatiable um i'm just looking at the stack of books in front of me um <laughs> and so that's a really interesting consideration to think about as a marketer if that were your profession but also to think about as a writer Um, if you're approaching an agent, what language do you use to let them know that you are aware of how this book would be situated? Because at the end of the day, they have to sell this to a publisher who has to sell this to um, someone who's going to sell the book. Um, And so that's an interesting consideration to think about and something that's useful to be aware of whatever part of the industry you work in. Um, And then from a teaching perspective, looking at the how authors particularly in my case can use food as a tool? How many things can be explored using a breakfast scene? Can how can character be built to be built? How can relationships be unpicked? How can um tension be um ratcheted up and you know plot forecasted? It's it's interesting to peel back with um one type of tool in your box how many things you can Impact as a writer.
0: So now it's got me thinking about okay, I, I think being really part of a community inhibits your ability to take a step back and see what your linguistic commonalities are. So now I'm like kind of thinking, okay, what linguistic commonalities do we have in board games? We have elegant, we have fiddly. There's crunchy. Com- I feel
1: like it's a recent one. Crunchy comes oh, up a lot.
0: Crunchy. Yes, we like we like our crunch. Mm, Which, like, if um, you're an outsider, like, what does that mean? <laughs> like... <laughs> right, whereas I mean, if you tell me a game is crunchy, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. But I can't actually define that for another yeah. person necessarily. Yeah, just like kind of like
1: this, <laughs> like I need to do a hand movement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, th- that's also really interesting in terms of marketing, right? I think about like all the Kickstarter blurbs I've read this very week, right? And they all talk about mechanisms. They talk about components because what's in the, we're very materialistic in our board game hobby. We yeah. really like to know about our components and their quality. Yeah. But then beyond that, like what kind of flavor words are we using? I mean, that's that actually is a really interesting consideration. And you know, you're right about crunchy. Like, how inviting are our flavor words to people who are not initiated into the yeah. the world of board games? And then how do we change that? What kind of changes should we make?
1: Yeah, I think it's an awareness of. Um, publishers and their marketers. Of if you're trying to reach a new audience, you need to ideally immerse yourself wherever they are congregating and immerse yourself in their world, and then work out how to talk to them. And that has to be kept. It's, I think it's so easy as someone who's writing Kickstarter copy right now to slip <laughs> back into point to point and point to point movement and set collection. And if you're not a ball gamer, it's like what is that like? And to think more about the storytelling taking it back to its roots and taking out the jargon because the gamers will know by looking at the game and that detail can come later on. But in terms of like the thematic so- storytelling and trying to include more people, it's going back to what storytelling is rather than relying on shorthand, which is a community, a game community we all love and is really useful, but also does close a door if you're not part of that community
0: do you think that we're going to see an evolution in using that more, I guess, more confined language as the board game industry expands? Cause I feel like right now it's also that we're kind of in an echo chamber, right? Where most publishers are also gamers. We're all very immersed in each other in board game geek in our own little corner of Twitter. Um, you know, what opportunities are we missing by not breaking free of that more often,
1: yeah, I think it's a it's a really tricky one because there's also opportunities are gained as well by staying in those spaces by strengthening and deepening relationships. You get to know that core group intimately well, and you get to make game if that's what you're interested in making games for the the people that you surround yourself with. Then you'll make brilliant games for them, I'm sure, and that might be. It might not be every publisher's intention to try and um reach new audiences. And I think that's fine. I think that if you do something well and you enjoy doing it and the people that you're making things for enjoy playing it and good for you and all power to you, I think as the industry grows, there will be a more conscious effort to to reach a more mainstream audience. And that's partly a business decision. There's more um Commercial potential there. And also, it will be, well, another type of business decision is that there won't, it might not be such a heavy component packed game, like you were mentioning. Like, it probably won't be a huge minis game with a, you know, a modular map to go on. It will be something smaller, cheaper, and more digestible for um, a consumer that may not have a huge board game library. And, but both approaches are okay, I think, as long as neither are shut down or dismissed.
0: Are there some adjustments to our language that we can make as gamers to make introductory games sound less like bad somehow? Does that make sense? I feel like a lot of us talk still about gateway games or we describe lighter, quicker games as filler. And they do in fact fill time between larger games at game night. I mean, the, I mean that's not an inaccurate description depending on how you're using the game, right? But, you know, even talking about light versus heavy, um, there's a certain you know, I'm more hardcore than you. Like vibe yeah. that comes from like, yeah, I'm a heavy gamer. And like, I say that I am a heavy gamer. I'm making fun of myself, you know? <laughs> mm, I'm not, I'm not a here for those family weight games. No, I actually <laughs> totally am. But <laughs> so like, are there ways that we can change our terminology to make it sound less condescending and more welcoming? Because something like Azul is a beautiful game design yeah. and it's amazing. And there is no need to make it sound like it's not that. By calling it oh, it's accessible, you know, yeah. like, it's good. Accessibility is good, yeah. but you know, we're implying There's this like labyrinth of people who are smarter than you, playing harder games than you. And yeah. is, there, is there a way to adjust this? I think the way you phrase that question is super
1: interesting because you're right. Accessible is the way to describe Brazil. Like that is there's not a better word to describe that. The I think the issue that you're getting at is tone and those words may have been co-opted as bad words (laughs) um and i think part of that is um maybe comes from grassroots gaming and reclaiming those words and reclaiming the spaces of this is an accessible game that i love to play with my friends who don't want to play gloomhaven with me and i part of that i think maybe maybe it doesn't this might be naive but maybe it doesn't have to be more complicated than that it's um is embracing all the various categories and the way we describe them. And coming back to your point about labeling something as filler or gateway, I think that's fair. For me, that's fairly acceptable language amongst gamers. But if you're trying then to describe something to someone who's not a gamer, that's when you have the problem, is because you're using language that is um, kind of foreign. And you may be putting up a barrier where it's like, I don't know what a gateway game is, and I'm now. I'm not into it, um, <laughs> so I think a lot of it is about um, tone and kind of individual impetus on on what kind of a lot. We can take personal responsibility for that. I think is what I'm trying to say.
0: So, how do you balance? And this is actually always the question I land at. Um, I'm very hardcore about people being allowed to do what they want, and you know. Um, Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a progressive person. I'm very liberal. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also do think it's important to respect other people's freedom to make their decisions and design what they're going to design and to publish what they're going to publish. However, um, I do think that just saying, well, you go on with your bad self. Everything's great. We can accept everyone is not, it's clearly not creating the community that gamers need if we're going to, not only grow from a marketing standpoint, which that's its something, but also be welcoming hmm. and invite a more diverse group of gamers, including women, including people of color, including, you know, um, people from the queer community. You know, we're not by just saying, Oh, well, everyone can just do what they want and we're fine. We're not necessarily doing the things that we need to do mm-hmm. to make our community inclusive in ways that are, equitable and that are I guess making us the kind of community that I want us to be if that makes sense yeah so how do you how do you balance between yeah you make games for your people and it works great and go on with it and wait maybe we're creating spaces that aren't safe for other people Mm. and that aren't that aren't inviting in ways that have deeper social resonance than just I like this kind of game
1: yeah yeah yeah, what I mentioned about um, if you make games for a particular type of person, go ahead and carry on doing that. I think if you do do that, then if those games are fairly criticised, you have to take that. And I think if you are looking to, you know, succeed as a publisher, then there's feedback to take on board in that instance and I think part of it is for publishers to listen to that and also for gamers to give it and not to be like it's a still a, a new quite a new industry and feedback makes a difference and people power makes a difference in that regard I think it's an interesting one in terms of um diversifying teams as well so if you have an all-male team I've that's not something that I would be happy with like i would want to have a um a team that has you know women in has um and i think that that's something else that we can think about as publishers and as gamers that we can start expecting from publishers as well because um, i kind of it's reductive but i do think there's a level of you can't be what you can't see and the community can't be what it can't see um and obviously, There are plenty of brilliant women gamers in the community at the moment who are, you know, enjoying the games that are made, but there could be more. And that's something that publishers for sure, I think,
0: have to be aware of. So I think this is actually really interesting It's bringing up this kind of relationship that I think we all have a hard time talking about in, in gaming, especially because I mean, reviewers, including me and publishers and designers, you know, we all are friends at conventions. I mean, I have really strong ethical lines about where I'll take money and where I won't. Um, Other people have different lines they've drawn for themselves. We're all negotiating it, but there's also this, yeah, I think it's really interesting to talk about sort of creating Versus criticism. Mm-hmm. And I, and you know, the idea that just because you created something, that doesn't mean that that's now your sacrosanct baby yeah. that nobody gets to like point at and say, this is messed up or yeah. like this needs to change. So, uh, how does that, how do, how do, people in bookmarking respond to criticism. I mean, it's such a huge industry and there are so many different places from which criticism could come as well as like a totally different hype machine. So let's start there. Like how do book publishers respond to criticism? How do they, how do they hear it? And to what extent do they pay attention?
1: I think they certainly pay attention. Um, There is a kind of depressing element of if there is a market for something, it will likely get published because there's, money on the table which is just a depressing element of living in a capitalist society (laughs) um (laughs) but saying that there is also a real drive for like for prize lists for example if a prize list is all male or all white like now with the advent of social media and of um being able to have meaningful opinions and express them quickly without barriers, that's starting to change, or at least be held accountable. And it's starting, it's it's the holding to account that I think um, is starting to change things in the book industry. Like there's a long way to go in terms of true reflective diversity and making stories and publishing stories and paying equally for stories by writers of all backgrounds. Um, I think. The same is possible for the board game industry. And it's partly, it's tricky though, as you say, because it's a small industry and you're friends with publishers and holding someone to account is a hard conversation. But I think that in a way, those friendships will help because those conversations can be had maybe in a more impactful way because it's not someone that you don't know it's hopefully someone that you can affect change with and i think it's being brave as a player um and as a reviewer and as anyone working in the industry and speaking up for what you think is the right thing to do for you and for other people
0: yeah that is an interesting point to you because i feel like if i had a problem with a book published by penguin random house i would not expect to hear back from somebody mm-hmm. at penguin random house just as an example you know but, um, you know, if I have a problem with a game that's come out, odds are I can either talk to the designer or to someone who works for the publisher. Yeah. Like that direct access is still there. And I do think that, yes, that's hard um, because it's a lot harder to look somebody dead in the eye and say, I think this is a problem. Mm. Um, <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's always that, that personal element makes it harder. But I do also think that, yeah, I mean, it's easier in terms of access. This is the most open time i think the board game industry is ever going to have to be able to have blunt conversations about where we're going together yeah um because if things become more corporate and more distant like i don't really i don't know who to talk to at asthma day i know who to talk yeah. to about a kickstarter campaign <laughs> yeah yeah it's but that uh, it also requires a lot more personal fortitude it's a lot easier to yell at someone you don't know
1: it is I th- I think that yelling at someone you don't know, has you have to be, to be heard, I think there has to be more than one person, which um, is possible, obviously, but I think there is, there is potential for change in a smaller industry, and maybe that's how it is with all smaller industries as they grow, that change happens because it can happen by you sending an email or picking up the phone to someone that you know, and then positive change can be um, affected. But yeah, it's an interesting point about in the book industry, if there's criticism, it's normally coming from several voices that have been raised up as as one, rather than, you know, a quiet word of saying with with a publisher, you know, I don't think that was um, a sensitive thing to publish or something like that.
0: Yeah, and of course, all this plays now into our current discourse about cancel culture such as it is um and i think that's also interesting too because you know there's i think it's important to get your voice out there and to criticize um even if i think you know people interpret that as intention to cancel and that's not necessarily the case Uh, asking for change is not asking someone to go away forever necessarily And and working out sort of the rules, I think, of accountability, what it means to respond correctly when you're being held accountable. It just means so much something that's so much different when it's really individuals interacting with each other in public.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. There's a different tone there because it's confronting. If you're confronted by an individual, it feels like something that's much more akin to your relationships and your normal life. And that, um, that can be scary. Um, but equally that's kind of, I think, where the most um, possibility for change is. Because like you say, if it's a large conglomerate, you get less chance to make contact when you have something to say. But um, yeah, it's a really interesting time. And I think I feel anywhere there's generally more of a conversation happening about accountability now and um, respectful design and just respectful um participation in the communicate in the community um so it's it's a really interesting time and I think a hopeful time it's my dog can you see him opening doors back
0: there just I can so those of you who are on the pod if you come watch the video around this time this dog just opened a door it's a lethal (laughs) habit (laughs) yeah one of my cats can do it too and it's like oh I thought I was going to Gets a shower alone today. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just goes into that room to eat Lego and then it's like, Can you not eat the Lego? <laughs> so we've been talking about some heavy stuff, but on a lighter note, why don't you just take a second to plug your game? Tell us all about Dog Park and how cute it's going to be. Okay, it's gonna be Very cute. I'm very excited about it. Um, So Dog Park is a game for
1: one to four players in which um, you take on the role as dog walkers with your friends. And over four rounds, you are collecting, caring for and walking dogs through this beautiful dog park. Um, And the game has been designed to include all 221 dog breeds that are recognised by the UK Kennel Club. So it's a real celebration of four-legged friends. I hate myself for saying that. (laughs) Um, It's the marketing in (laughs) unity. I know it really is. It's like, just don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Um, And it is a really, um, as the person that didn't do the art, I can um, shout about it as much as I want, but it is beautifully put together by an amazing creative team. um, That's art directed by Dan May, who um, also did the art direction and graphic design for Everdell and A War of Whispers. So, an amazing amazing talent um yeah brennan Nunan, who also um did the development for everdale she helps to develop dog park and working with her on storytelling um in terms of board games has been just invaluable as we've worked on this project and then our two artists um physical artists are holly exley who's a um, British based watercolour artist who's done an amazing job at illustrating these 221 dogs and Kate Avery who's illustrated the park which I want to just live in I want to <laughs> crawl into the painting and live in um, so yeah it's really fun it's a um a set collection game I'm sorry if you're not a gamer and you're hearing me say set collection after everything I've said and you're like please <laughs> tell me what this is um and yeah it's a really fun one that I, we've enjoyed developing Um, definitely a game for dog lovers. And just, you know, if you love a beautiful game.
0: Fantastic. All right, so uh, what, other than your game, which is, of course, the primo game that you would be playing right now, uh, what's a game that you're currently playing and enjoying?
1: Oh, good question. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you what I laughed about in a little bit. Um, One that I'm playing and enjoying at the moment is... I played Viticulture again recently, which is really nice. Um, I used to play Viticulture a lot a while ago and I come out and my brain would feel like it had been rung like a sponge um and I feel like I've finally got to the point with the game where I know it well enough where I'm like it's fine I'll just run my vineyard and it's fine it can go smoothly it'll go well um what else I like um Parks I Always Love by Keymaster Games that's such a joyful joyful game and the art in that is just fantastic um and the thing that I was laughing about, because whenever someone asks me my favourite games, I just want to shout banana grams because I'm obsessed with this game. that comes in a banana. Um Yeah. And I love that one. Um one that there I like to play. No with. shame. Um, no, absolutely not. Um and a great one for um people that aren't familiar with other games. It's a really nice, um really nice quick one. So yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, I've stocked it for students before. I actually need to like go and get new versions of some of those games. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, since you are a reader, uh, what is a really good book that you've read recently that uh, the rest of us should consider?
1: Yeah, one that I've read very recently, which really stayed with me, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since, is Transcendent Kingdom by Yargasi. Um, yeah, um, which I just loved. I find her writing so beautiful but incredibly economic with her prose like there is absolutely no um bag in that book at all it's just really gorgeous and i don't think that they're in my experience of coming across and there are enough books that um look at the relationship between science and religion and that the tussle of that and the middle ground of um of what an experience of living a scientific and a religious life is like Another one that I've loved recently, I may go on, so do shut me up if I'm uh, carrying on um, too much, is um, Luster by Raven Lilani, which is a great um, book that came out, I think, last year now, which is a millennial woman's struggle to kind of find what she wants to do um, whilst grappling with um, kind of institutionalised racism sexism being a woman in the world in um new york which was a great read as well i will stop talking now because i just have a stack of books and i'll just read them out to you <laughs>
0: <laughs> no i'm the exact same way so he's like what should i read it's like <laughs> but yeah. i absolutely second your um your recommendation of transcendent kingdom and I'll, i'm gonna check out Lester myself now but yeah transcendent kingdom by the way for those of y'all who are listening it is so good man that book hit me hard yeah i thought about it for a long time after i read it, it stays with you doesn't it is that, oh my god it, it does yeah Yeah, especially it hit me really hard especially because um you know i was raised christian myself not quite that hardcore um also i mean she has i I won't ruin her own faith journey but like i am a a total heathen at this point but (laughs) but reading about other people's religious struggles from the american south is like yeah always really interesting and it's done so well in Mm -hmm. this particular novel it's good stuff Yeah. yeah Alright, so last just sort of boilerplatey question where can we find you online?
1: You can find Birdwood Games, which I do a lot of my game tweeting um, at, obviously on Twitter. Um, we're at Birdwood Games, and you can find us the same handle on Instagram. Um, and on our website is just birdwoodgames.co.uk. Loads of information about Dog Park and um, signing up to our newsletter. And if you want to follow me, I talk less about games, although a little bit about games and more about books, um, you can find me at LD Hazel on Twitter and Instagram.
0: Fantastic. And those of you who watch the pod, you know uh, you can find me anywhere Is beyond Solitaire. Lottie, thank you so much for coming on. This was so interesting and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours. I'm just, I'm like, we can just carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so those of you who listened, thank you so much. Leave us a like, leave us a comment and most of all, happy gaming. And reading. This is a dual podcast.